0: All right, take your Bible and open with me, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. This morning, I have a confession to make. This is um, this is my all-time favorite passage in all of God's Word, and I've been chomping at the bit to get here. And uh, here we are this morning. I also need to confess to you that I've had a hard time this week knowing what to say and what not to say today, without us being here for like three days until Tuesday or something, and. Um, so by God's grace, we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter two, and I just have one simple goal in today's message. It is this: um, I want to remind you this morning how absolutely awesome God is. Amen. amen. The Amen section is over here, by the way. In in the move, apparently they've all sat over here together. That's great. Um, So my goal is to remind us how awesome God is, and if we've done that this morning, then that's a win for us. And I hope um, the reality is that there's some of you here right now, maybe many of us across the room who are uh, thinking to yourself, well, isn't that the goal of every sermon? Like shouldn't it be every time we walk out of this room after church on Sunday that we walk out of here saying not so much, uh, those were great songs that we sang, that was a good message that we heard, but, but we should be saying we have an awesome God. And, and it's nice to say that was a good message, those were great songs, that's encouraging, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but to be walking out of here saying to one another with worship growing in our hearts, we have an absolutely awesome God. However, when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, there's a heightened sense of the awesomosity of God. That's right, you heard me, I just made up a new word. The awesome-osity of God. There's just this heightened sense. It's like off the charts awesome about who God is. And the reality is that if you're here this morning and you're saved in Jesus Christ, you are a born-again Christian, then what we are about to go through in these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is your story. It's my story. It's our story together. And the circumstances of your story may be a little bit different than mine. They probably are. But the reality is, at its baseline, this is the story of every person who has saved in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to start by giving you the outline of our message. I normally don't do that, but I want you to see how it comes directly out of this passage in Ephesians 2, as I hope it does every sermon, but I want you to see it this morning. The outline is very simply this. And you, but God, so that. And you, but God, so that. So back in chapter one, Paul began this letter to the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding region by teaching them this is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is the work that God has done within your life to make you who you are in Christ. This is your new identity. In the second half of chapter one, he said, this is how you live in light of who you are. This is how you know, not simply who you are, but this is how you live in light of that reality. Now, as he transitions into chapter two, he tells us this is how God has brought that work about within your life. And so he starts chapter two by saying, and you, that's verse one. You can see the first two words in verse one, and you. And Paul begins to outline for us the reality of who we were before we came to know Jesus Christ. That This was your life. This is the direction you were headed. This is the destiny that you were going for. This was your life. But then he goes on and he says, but God... That's the first two words in verse four. But God, and he tells us who God is and he tells us what God has done to take us from where we were to where we now are in Jesus Christ. And then he keeps going still and he says, so that. That's verse seven, first two words in verse seven. So that, so in light of who God is and in light of what God has done within your life to take you from where you were to where you now are, this is the difference that it needs to make within your life. So let's start by jotting this down. You can see this up on the screen. To be truly saved means that we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and all of this by the overwhelming generosity of God. To be truly saved means that we are raised from spiritual death in our sins to spiritual life in Jesus Christ, and all of this by the overwhelming generosity of God. I want you to know that um, just as we get into this passage this morning that I've been praying specifically for um, three groups of people here perhaps in the room right now. Uh, The first group I've been praying for is for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, we live in light of this reality that Paul is about to unpack for us here in chapter two. And I'm praying that we will grow more and more this morning, deeper and deeper in our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to take us from where we were and bring us to where we are. I've also been praying for those of you who might be here this morning and uh, you're not believers in Jesus Christ. You haven't surrendered your life to him and, and you don't pretend to be a Christian and, and we're glad that you're here this morning. Maybe you're here and you've got questions and, and you're exploring things about what it means to be a Christian and, and we want you to know that you're welcome here and we're glad that you're here. But I've been praying specifically for you as well that this morning God would pour out an abundance of his grace and mercy upon your life even right here and right now that you would walk out of this building this morning saved in Jesus Christ. I've also been praying for a third group of people. And I've been praying for some of you who might be here right now this morning, and you think you're saved, but you're not. And you've been living your life, and, and you can look back in your life to a time when maybe you said a prayer when you were a kid. You, you raised your hand at camp. You walked down an aisle. You did something that would give you the impression that you have given your life to Jesus Christ, but it hasn't really made any sort of noticeable difference within your life. And, and so now here you are, and you look around in your life at people that you know are Christians. You know that they're saved, and you look at their life, and you think, why is it that they have something in their life that I don't have in mine? And the reality is, when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you're saved, you're truly saved, it makes a difference in the way that you live. It makes a dent in who you once were, and it changes you completely. But you're looking around, and and you feel like you've been walking through this religious wasteland, and, and you've been deceived into believing something that is not true. I've been praying for you this morning that by the time we're done here, you'll walk out of here with the absolute positive assurance that you are saved in Jesus Christ. To be truly saved means that we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and all of this by the overwhelming generosity of God. So Paul says three things here, and you, but God, so that. Let's start with this, number one. And you, see your past utter spiritual deadness. This is where Paul begins in, I just want to remind you as we start our way through this passage this morning that in order for us to truly appreciate the good news of the gospel, we need to understand the bad news that made the gospel necessary. And that's where Paul begins here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. When Paul says here that we're dead, of course, he's referring to our spiritual death, not physical death. He says, Our spiritual death that Um, we are dead not because we have committed sin, but rather we are dead because we are sinful. And you say, well, what's the difference? The difference is that we are sinners at the very core of who we are. That was our nature prior to Jesus Christ. We needed to be saved from that. Think of it like this. A person is not a thief because they steal a car. They steal a car because at the core of who they are, they're a thief already. A person is not a cheater because they cheat on their taxes, A person cheats on their taxes because at the core of who they are, they are a cheater already. And the way that Paul structures this in verse 1, he says that committing sin is not what makes us a sinner. Committing sin is not what makes us dead. We sin because at the core of who we are, we are sinful. We are sinful people. That is our nature. That's why Paul says in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. Not even a single person on the face of the earth who's ever walked on this planet is righteous before God. There's not a shred of righteousness in any person. No one is looking for God. No one is searching for God. No one is looking out for him in any possible way. No one is righteous. No, not one. Which leads then, Paul, to say in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And he says here, and you were dead In the trespasses and sins. Sin here is uh, missing the mark. It's missing the target. When God says up, we go down. When God says left, we go right. And we do that not because we've misunderstood what God has said, we do that because we live for ourselves. At, At the very base of it, sin is disobeying God. We do that because at our core, that's what we do. We disobey God and we live our life for ourselves. Trespass here carries the idea of treading on someone else's ground. That's why we put up these big no trespassing signs, right? Because we want that sign to communicate that when people walk up to that no trespassing sign, that they won't go past that point. Because if they go past that point, there's danger on the other side of that sign. There's consequences on the other side of that sign that could do damage to them and to the people that they love. And so we put up these no trespassing signs and for us to trespass because we are spiritually dead, we go to the places where God has told us not to go and we do the things that God has told us not to do. And as a result of that, we trespass on God's right to rule within our lives. It brings up an interesting question. How do you know if verse one is your present or your past? How do you know if you're spiritually alive or spiritually dead? And as Paul goes into verse 2, he tells us that spiritually dead people walk in three directions. Notice this. First of all, he says, spiritually dead people follow the ways of the world. Verse 2, he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So notice here that the world has a course. The world has a way that it goes. And spiritually dead people follow the ways of the world. We see the ways of the world all around us, don't we? We see the patterns, we see um, the, just the way that the world lives its life and does its thing. We look around and we see this overwhelming desire for independence that people have. You know, I'll live my own life on my own terms, I'll do my own thing at my own time in my own way and, and you can just leave me alone and, and it leads people to say things like, I'll find God my way and you can find God your way but can we just agree that we're not gonna judge anybody who happens to find God in a different way than we do? and just this idea of independence that just pervades the world that we live in we see it in materialism you know i i need my safety and my security and my identity to come from the things and the possessions that the world can give me and if i don't have these things then what am i going to do my life is not going to be complete and and it goes on and on and on and And it's not that having things is a bad thing. It's not that having nice things is a bad thing. But when our safety and security and identity come from those things, that's a problem, and that's the way that the world goes. We see it in humanism. There is no God. So we're just going to live our lives for ourselves. We're just going to do everything that we can to make ourselves happy to the point where there's this sense of entitlement that people live with that, that every experience that we go through has to end in some way, shape, or form with our happiness. Everyone is basically good, humanism says. We see the ways of the world all around us. And Paul says here, one of the ways that you know a person is spiritually dead is that they follow the ways of the world. Now, it might not be a big deal for you to have a conversation with somebody and, and you say to them, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about you because you're following the ways of the world. They, they might be a little bit upset about that, but maybe not super offended by it. But chuck this next one at them and see what sticks. Notice what Paul says next. Spiritually dead people follow the system of Satan. Like, say that to somebody. That conversation's probably going to stop right there, right? But notice, that's, that's where Paul goes next in verse 2. He says, Following the prince of the power of the air... The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Spiritually dead people follow the system of Satan. Notice here that Satan is the prince. The power of the air are his host of demons who use the ways of the world to blind unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. And the intent of Satan is to destroy everything, especially the things of God. And those who follow Satan give their lives to the very same thing. Spiritually dead people follow the system of Satan. And then he says this next, spiritually dead people feed the flesh. Verse three, just keeps going and says, among whom we all once lived, don't miss that. Take a look around you. The all there means all. Everybody, we all once lived like this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I want you to notice here the language that Paul uses because this is somewhat extreme and it's driving us really to a bigger point here. He, first of all, says the passions of our flesh, passion meaning a longing for something that in this case is forbidden. He also says the desires of the body and the mind. The desire then being seeking after something with diligence. Like we just keep going after it and going after it and going after it, and we're not gonna be settled until we finally get it. It's the desire of the body and the mind. And, and he says here that the, these passions and desires have infected every part of who we are. So notice here, he says it's infected our flesh. So, when he talks about our flesh, he's referring here to our entire nature as human beings. Again, going to the very core of who we are. And he says here it's infected our body meaning our physical body, and it's infected our mind, meaning the the way that we think and the patterns of thinking that we use within our life. So notice here the totality of what Paul is saying. He's saying that we were living a life before Christ saved us. We were living a life that was totally and completely consumed with ourselves. Again, Romans 3, we weren't looking for God, we weren't searching for God, we weren't going after God. There was not a single solitary part of who we were that was looking for God in any possible way. We were consumed with glorifying ourselves, with gratifying ourselves, with justifying ourselves, with pleasing ourselves in whatever way we possibly could. And as a result of that, because that goes to the very core of who we are, as a result of that, Paul says, by nature, We were children of wrath. Because of who we were, at the very core of ourselves, we were children of wrath. So notice here, when he says children, he's not just talking about what we did, he's talking about who we were. He says we deserved the wrath of God. In case we were tempted to miss the significance of what Paul says when we are children of wrath, consider for a minute what Jesus says about the wrath of God upon those who do not believe. Mark 9 verse 48, Jesus says that hell is a real place. He says hell is a real place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus there is painting a picture of a real place of judgment and torment, and eternal regret upon people who in this life have turned away from God and will never be able to turn back and make it right. Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath. See, I want you to see the big point here of what Paul's saying. He's saying in these first few verses, we are completely and totally depraved. We are sinful people deserving of the judgment of God. Not only did we live in sin, but we loved to live in sin. That's why he says here, the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and mind. We wanted the passions. You want the desires. We go after these things over and over until they're satisfied. And so, loved ones, when we look at that, when we consider that, we need to understand that even right now, there is a battle that rages for the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Like this is what he's describing here. He's describing you and I before we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We need to understand that right now there is a spiritual battle that rages around us for the hearts and the minds of unbelievers. And quite frankly, it is not enough for us to be unmoved by the ways of the world as if we could take them or leave them. It's not enough for me to be not impacted by the philosophies and the ways of the world that we see around us as if it's no big deal. Listen, the Bible says here that Satan and his demons are working in the sons of disobedience. That literally means that they are energizing unbelievers right now through the ways of the world to completely disregard the ways of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, listen to how Paul describes this. He says, in their case, that is, in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world, who is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, we need to understand that not only do unbelievers not see the light, But they are so blinded that they don't even know that there is a light for them to see. And that's the nature of the battle that we are in right now. And loved ones, that just by itself should be dropping us to our knees in prayer for our loved ones. That should be dropping us to our knees for our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, whoever it is that God has brought into our life right now at this moment who does not know God through faith in Jesus Christ. That should be bringing us to our knees in prayer. It should be filling us with an urgency to go and share the good news of God's love through Jesus Christ for us. In fact, it should even be bringing us to the place where even right now we are examining our own hearts and asking ourselves, if I am truly alive in Jesus Christ, am I giving my life to pursue things that only a spiritually dead person would pursue? Like, what are you giving your life for? What are you following after? What are you laying things down for so that you can go after something else? Is, this, is it a spirit of independence? Independence? Like, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm not going to worry too much about other people. I'm not going to worry too much about the believers. I'm not going to worry too much about the church. I'm just going to go and do my own thing at my own pace, on my own time, and not worry about anything else. Is it a spirit of materialism that I need this, I need that in order for my life to be complete? Like, I'm not going to find my security and my safety and my comfort and my identity in anything else until I get that thing that I can hold on to. Like, is that what you're giving your life for? And is it leading then to a spirit of indifference and apathy and complacency about the things of God that you don't really care so much about the things of God anymore because your life and your mind and your heart is so focused on the things of the world? Like if I'm alive in Jesus Christ, am I giving my life to pursue the things that only a spiritually dead person would pursue? It's not that we become spiritually dead again. Let's be clear on that. That's not what happens but is the outward indication of my life such that it appears as though I'm going after the things that only a spiritually dead person would go after. Listen, friends, don't, don't glaze over the first few verses here in chapter two, okay? Because it's like Paul is shouting out to us right at the start and he's saying, hey, listen, listen, don't forget who you were. Don't forget where you came from. Like, Don't forget this was your reality before God busted into your life and showed you the love of Christ. It's important for us to remember that because now Paul turns a corner. He comes to verse four, and he says, but God. Put those two words together, that makes a bad day good. Right, like don't you love reading through the New Testament, reading through Paul's writings especially, and and he gets so worked up, and it's like this is so bad, so bad, so bad, no good, horrible, can't believe it's like this. This is so bad, so bad, but God. Right? And then he just busts through in praise of who God is. And that's what we see next. Here's point number two. But God, see his present mind-blowing goodness. So at the beginning, see your past utter spiritual deadness. But now, see his present mind-blowing goodness. We read these next few verses in chapter two. And we learn a little bit about God here. Uh, verse four, Paul says that God is rich in mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And Paul says here that God is rich in this. His wealth is unlimited in this. It is overflowing. It is pouring out in abundance, in compassion and pity upon us. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, because of the great love with which he loved us. You notice here that Paul says that in verse 4 in the past tense. Because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, before time even began. God had the kind of affection, he had the kind of love upon you and upon me that instantly and eternally would seek our highest good. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here, so much so to the point where God would give up something that was extraordinarily meaningful to him for our sake. Now, if only there was another verse in the Bible that talks about God's love like that. Oh wait, there is. There's actually quite a few of them. How about Romans 5 verse 8? Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like God shows his love for you and for me like this, that while we were still sinners, in our state of sin, Christ died for us. He gave his one and only son for us. How about this? Isaiah 54 verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, listen, who has compassion on you. That's awesome. Paul goes on and and says, because of this mercy and this love, this has now compelled God to action. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That's amazing. Remember the disciples on the first Easter morning on resurrection. The Sunday morning, that very first one, and Jesus had just died on the cross a couple of days before, and the disciples are heartbroken, they're grief-stricken, they don't know what to do, and, and the two Marys decide that they're going to go to the tomb, and they run there and they get there. When they get there, they find that the stone has been rolled away from the front of the tomb, and on top of the stone, there's this angel sitting there, and when the two Marys get to the tomb, the angel looks down at them and says, hey, don't be afraid, I know that you're here looking for Jesus, but he's not here, he is alive. Like he is risen from the dead. He is not, it's like he's shouting out to them, hey, hey, listen, you need to understand, the grave couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him. He's not here. He is alive. He is risen from the dead. And because Christ is alive now, Paul says, we are alive with him. Paul says later in Romans 6 that Christ shared in our death so that we could share in his life. That's amazing. So consider this, Jesus Jesus was not resuscitated, okay? You need need to hear this. He was not resuscitated. It's not like he was having a really bad day, wasn't feeling very good, and he just kind of reached out to somebody else. He wasn't dead, but he just reached out to somebody else for help, and somebody else came along, rubbed the paddles together, and boom! And all of a sudden, we got a bigger, better, stronger, faster Jesus. No, that's not what happened. He was not resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected, He was dead. And then by the power of God within him, he is alive again. And so what we need to understand is that what happened to Jesus also happens to us. We do not need to be spiritually resuscitated. Do you get that? It's not like we're a little bit alive, but we're close to dying and we need a little bit of help, so we reach out and no, like there's, there's no life in us, okay? We are spiritually dead. Like no life, no breath, no little tail wag in there. There's nothing at all. Like we can't do anything at all. We need to be made alive. We need to be spiritually resurrected. And that's what Jesus does for us. Because he died and he rose again. We now have new life in him. Listen, Jesus does not make bad people good. He does not make sick people well. He makes dead people live. And all of this happens by the grace of God. You need to see this, that the kindness, the goodness, the favor of God that we have done nothing to earn and nothing to deserve is poured out upon us. Like the only reason that we are lifted up out of the pit of our sin is because God, in his kindness, in his mercy, has reached down and pulled us out. We couldn't climb out. We couldn't do anything to get out. It's just God reaching down and pulling us out by his grace. So Paul goes on in verse 6, as if that's not enough. He says, by his grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him. That phrase, raised us up with him, is where we get our idea of synchronization. So you take a cord, you hook one end to your phone, one end to your computer. All of a sudden, what's on your computer is now on your phone. Same idea here. What happened to Christ has happened to us. What belongs to Christ now belongs to us. We have been synced, so to speak, with him. It goes on in verse six, and he says, "...and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." meaning we have been given a position of power and authority over evil, Paul says here, in the heavenly places, in other words, in God's domain, in the sphere of spiritual life and not in the sphere of spiritual death. This is what has happened to you if you are in Jesus Christ. You have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And loved ones, that is good news for all of us right now who are here in Jesus Christ are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is really good news and here's why it's good news. It is good news because that means then that sin does not own you anymore. Sin does not have its unrelenting grip on you anymore because you are in a position of power and authority over evil within your life, over sin within your life. I was talking to a person in our church just this week who was telling me the story of their salvation and how God saved them out of a life of addiction and they said to me it was as clear as the day is long that there was a moment that was so amazingly clear where they said God saved me by his grace God made me a new creation in Christ Jesus and and when God saved me it's like when the days get bad and the times get hard and they do they said but but when all of those triggers start getting pulled that would drive me into that life and into those patterns of addiction, it's like, no way, man, not anymore. Not anymore, because I'm new creation in Jesus Christ. God has saved me. God has raised me from spiritual death, from following the ways of the world, from following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He has saved me so that I can live in Jesus Christ. I am alive in him. And so those things, those addictions that used to define my life, no more, man. That is not me anymore. Sin does not own you any longer. It does not have its unrelenting grip on you anymore. See, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to get so consumed by the problems of our life to the point where they feel overwhelming and and to the point where sinful patterns and ways of thinking start to dominate what we do and how we live our life. And, And part of the message, part of the way that we apply what Paul is saying here is that we cannot live from the problems that we go through. We have to live from the position that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, your position in Jesus Christ is that you are no longer spiritually dead. You are spiritually alive. You have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your position. His power is your power. His life is your life. And when you live from that position, just think of the difference that it begins to make as biblical truth begins to shape your life in so many ways. When you walk in the truth, when you begin to live your life from your position in Christ, you begin to walk more and more day by day in the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Like when you begin to live your life from your position in Jesus Christ, you begin to walk more and more day by day in the truth that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And when that happens, your heart just begins to fill more and more to overflowing to abundance with worship and gratitude, and thankfulness, and joy, and peace, and delight in the reality that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have been saved by the grace of God. So he says, and you, but God, which takes us now to point number three, so that, so that, see Your life altering purpose. This is our purpose, Paul starts in verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has saved us so that in the coming ages, Paul says, that means now and into eternity, he will show us his grace. His grace never ends. His grace never stops. It's just a steady stream, a flowing stream of grace. Like, just think about it. Your life, my life, grace, 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 grace. Things get hard and things get difficult and we don't know why, but it's still grace, 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 grace. It's just a steady flow, a steady stream of God's grace within our life. And you say, well, Well, how is it then that God allows bad things to happen to me? Why is it that I'm going through a difficult time and and I I can't explain why I'm going through what I'm going through, but it's so hard. Why has God allowed tragedy into my life? Why has he allowed pain and suffering into my life? We can't say with, with absolute certainty the reasons that God has for allowing those circumstances into your life. We don't know why God has allowed it, but what we do know is that his grace cannot be stopped by it. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So see your purpose here. Our redeemed lives are the stage on which God's grace is played out. And here's how Paul says, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice this, our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ for God. Our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ for God. Again, just like Paul said back in verse five, we are saved purely by the grace of God, his unmerited favor upon us, his goodness toward us that we have done nothing to earn and nothing to deserve. He has given us his grace and he has saved us. He has rescued us. He has delivered us from judgment, from wrath that was rightfully, should have been rightfully ours. And this salvation then is applied to our life through faith. We become a Christian when we repent of our sins and believe in Christ to save us. Now, to be clear, we are not saved because of something we do. We are saved because of something God does. Let me see if I can um, illustrate this for you in a helpful way. Imagine that uh, it's the middle of summer and it's August and... Um, it's like the hottest day of the year, okay? And I'm just trying to encourage you in the dog days of winter, okay? It's like the hottest day of the year in August and you decide to use the hottest day of the year to do some yard work. And so you go outside and, and you're outside doing a couple hours of yard work and you've got sweat that's just pouring down your face and your throat is dry and you would do anything for some cold water to drink at that point. In fact, you would do anything including going over to the hose, turning it on and drinking from the hose, which personally I find disgusting, but you would do that because you're absolutely desperate. You need some cold water. So you go over to the hose, you turn on the tap, the water comes out, you hold the hose up to your mouth, you drink the water and your thirst is satisfied and you're so thankful that you have the water to drink. Your thirst is satisfied not because of the hose, Your thirst is satisfied because of the water that comes through the hose. Your spiritual thirst is satisfied not because of faith. Your spiritual thirst is satisfied because of the grace that comes through the faith. And the beautiful thing that Paul says here is that God is the one who does it all. From the very beginning to the very end, God is the one who brings all of this about from start to finish. God is the one who purchases the hose. God is the one who connects it to the faucet. God is the one who turns the faucet on. God is the one who controls the flow of the water. God's the one who purifies the water. God's the one who gives you the ability to hold the hose up to your mouth so you can take a drink. God is the one who gives you the physical ability to actually take a drink. God is the one who actually brought you across your backyard so that you could actually find a place where your thirst would be satisfied and then God is the one who allowed you to sit back and rest in the joy and the thankfulness that your thirst has been satisfied. God is the one who purchased your salvation. God is the one who gave his only son to die on the cross in your place and for your sins. God is the one who gave you the awareness to understand that your sin has offended his holiness. God is the one who gave you the ability to call out to him in repentance and faith and say, God, I have sinned against you and I need to be forgiven only by you. Will you please forgive me and make me alive? God is the one who gives you the ability to see that Jesus Christ died in your place and for your sins. And his sacrifice alone is what makes you right with God. God is the one who does all of this. God is the one who brought you to a place in your life where you could finally see that there is somewhere you could go for your your spiritual thirst to be fully and finally satisfied. And now God is the one who from that moment when you took the drink of living water from Jesus Christ is now allowing you to sit back and rest in the joy and thankfulness for all that he has done for you to save you from your sins and make you alive in Christ and reconcile you to himself. God is the one who does all of it from beginning to end. And why is that so important? So that in the end, God gets all of the glory for all of our salvation, for every part of it from beginning to end. God is the one who has done it. And listen, loved ones, when you pass from death to life, When you pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, you begin to understand with a lot more clarity that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. That there are no good works that you can do. That you can't do enough good works to make yourself right with God. You can't give enough money to make yourself right with God. You can't come to church enough times to make yourself right with God. You can't do anything. You can't give money to charities. You can't help people that you know and people that you don't know. You can't do enough of those things in order to make yourself right with God. Why? Because God is the one who has done all the work for you. God is the one who has provided our salvation. Which explains what Paul says next in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship in verse 10 is used only one other place in all of the New Testament. It's used in Romans chapter 1, uh, where Paul uses that word to describe God's creation of the world and how God brought about life where no life previously existed What's interesting is that Paul now uses that same word here in Ephesians 2 to talk about us, to talk about you and me, and he's describing how God has brought about life where no life previously existed. Isn't that amazing? And so the purpose now of that new life, Paul says, is that we would do good works. So notice here, Paul has taken us completely around the block. In verse 1, he said, you were dead in your sins in which you once walked. But now in verse 10, he says that you're saved for good works, that you should walk in them. So we go from verse 1, where we're dead in our sins, we're walking in that path, and God so radically transforms our life that now in verse 10, we're walking in a totally different path. We're walking after the good works of Jesus Christ. Part of the point here is that when you're saved, there's a change that takes place within your life, and it needs to become evident in the things that you do. If your faith is not deep enough to change you, then that faith was not strong enough to save you. True saving faith produces true lasting change. The Bible says here that we've been rescued from walking in our sins so that you can walk in the good works of your Savior. Now, what exactly are those good works? What does it mean to walk in those good works I mean, just think of many Christians who have spent so much time and so much energy and lost so much sleep trying to figure out, am am I walking in the good, good works that God has set aside for me to do? Like, am I really using my life in the way that God wants me to use my life? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And it's a good thing to know what we need to be spending our lives for, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about here is walking in holiness. Walking in obedience to Jesus, living a Christ-like life in all that you do. And why does that matter? It matters because it testifies to God's power to so radically change a life that only once knew how to walk in sin, but now walks in the good works of your Savior. Testifies to God's power to change a life so much like that. Love how John Newton said it. He said I'm not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient. I'm not what I wish to be, I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be, soon soon I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I'm yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am.